He was from the village of Gawiram, but he was the bishop of Urmi, and his tomb is in the old St. Mary's in Urmi. He's, he's buried there. So he was here for about 20 years before the Civil War. Abraham Lincoln wasn't even president yet, and we had an wow. Assyrian bishop here. friends and welcome to the Assyrian Podcast. My name is Steve and I'm the host of the Assyrian Podcast and this is episode 6. How awesome was it last week hearing from our new host Odessa and now we have a whole new region that's going to be covered by her so that is so exciting. On this episode I got to interview a man who really needs no introduction within the Assyrian community, Mar Awa Ruel, the Bishop of the Assyrian Church of the East overseeing California. I've known Mar Awa for years and we have some of the best conversations. So I wanted to try and capture one of those conversations. Now I must tell you that our original conversation went for several hours and I had to do some editing and distill this one down. So you know what that means. That means we're gonna have Marawa back on the show in the future. So thanks so much for all of your support and please rate and review us, share with your friends and spread the word about the Assyrian podcast. I'm so thrilled with how many people are listening and sharing and and giving us so much positive feedback. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Email us at assyrianpodcast at gmail.com and check our show notes for more information. Please rate and review us on the iTunes store because it really does help. And now here is Marawa. Walk us through, how did you go from David to Marawa? So where does my story begin? My story begins when my parents and family arrived to the U.S. in January of 1975, coming in from Iraq, of course. And after a short sojourn in Lebanon for about a year and a half, they arrived in the dead of winter in Chicago, which in those years, uh, yeah, the winters were quite harsh. And so I was born on the 4th of July, and I know there's a movie called Born on the 4th of July. My story is different than than the uh, protagonist of that movie. But yeah, so I grew up in Chicago, a Midwesterner by by birth and by uh, by training. And from my childhood, I was always in the church, in the youth group, in the Sunday school first, and then in the youth group. And growing up with family and cousins and whatnot in, in the greater Assyrian community. So I was just sort of formed as I grew and went along and, in the Assyrian context, basically. And how many siblings? I am the uh, the youngest of five siblings. Wow. Yes. So and you and I survived. So that's you're, a good and, you, thing. and you're the only one who have been born in the U.S. That is correct. Yes, all of my other siblings were born in Iraq, and uh, I'm the only American born. What was it like growing up in Chicago, and especially coming from your parents being newly here? Well, yeah, I grew up in Chicago itself. So at that time, the majority of our people were in the city. The phenomena that we have now where the Syrians are mostly in the suburbs didn't exist back then. They were like right in the center of Chicago. They were in the center of Chicago and I grew up in the North Park area. And so going to school, elementary school, I went to Hagen Elementary School and then Mather High School, which at the time, in the early 90s when I was there from 89 to 93, we had a large Assyrian student body at the time. I sort of just assimilated, as it were, in the, in the normal culture. But at the same time from my early childhood, as I mentioned, that I also grew up in the church. So I went to Sunday school at St. George Cathedral, Marguerite, which is, was, is still the largest church that we have in Chicago. Mm-hmm. 
And so from that early period of formation in my life, the church played a very important part. It wasn't something that was forced upon me by my, by my parents. Now, is your family lineage a family of like priests or clergy? In terms of the lineage, we don't have what the church used to have where we had dynastic bishoprics and archbishoprics. And at one point, the patriarchate was also dynastic. Yeah. So going back to your story, I think what many people would love to know is you're born in America, you have all the freedoms that American has, and then you decide you want to serve the church and you, you want to you know, give your life to the church. How did that happen? Obviously, there's the divine aspect in the sense that any vocation to the church is a divine calling. It's a calling from God. But by the same token, there's the human aspect of it where there's our free will and we have to sort of align our will to God's will, which is, I think, what happened. And my parents never forced me to enter the priesthood and then the service of the church. But it, I sort of grew up in it from Sunday school, from the youth that we had. You had a, like an amazing experience and you... Yeah, it was something that... It's kind of kind of weird. I can't explain it to say that there is this eureka moment mm-hmm. or this, you know, this light came up. And so I it was just, gradual. It was sort of... It, it was gradual. Mm-hmm. It was formational, I would say. So there's this process from early childhood and then growing up as a teenager. And I mean, when I was ordained a deacon, I was in high school. I was made a, made a deacon at 16, which is rather young. Mm-hmm. Uh, that might sound weird to those who And are, what uh, happened? Well, uh, I began to study the church's liturgy and Aramaic, which, of course, the services of the church. And you just love the language. I did, yes, at an early age. So in Sunday school, in addition to the basic faith of the church, we also learned a modern Assyrian. So after my Sunday school years, when I got into the, the church's youth group at about 14, 15 or so, that's when I started to learn Aramaic from the older priests that were there in Chicago at the time. And that entailed reading the Psalter and translating the Psalter from Aramaic into modern Assyrian. So that was part of the exercise. And then evening prayers, of course, morning prayers on Sundays. So that was all, it's it's a process that took a number of years. So I began to formally study with uh, some of our older priests in Chicago, I'd say at around the end of the 80s, when it was about 13 or 14. So definitely love what you're doing at a very young age and you mentioned a couple times that your parents didn't force you just curious like is that a thing do you do you sense a lot of that where kids are feeling a lot of pressure to serve the church in a way that maybe they don't want to or not across the board but you'll find instances for example and this is a good thing of course i'm not by any means bashing it but you'll find parents especially the moms you know they want to see make sure they want to see their son up there at the altar or, or reading or serving which is a very good thing and i i would encourage any moms that are listening to us to really really you know encourage their their young boys to do that so you'll find that nowadays. I don't know if it's pressure or not, but uh, there used to be. I mean, growing up at around my age and probably even older, yes, there would have been more pressure. Nowadays, you'll find that it's really volitional. It's it's you know, it's your own will. It's your own choosing. I must say that that my late mother was always very very supportive of my vocation, especially when. I, transitioning from diaconate to priesthood. My father was also, later on, he became very supportive. But in those early years, I think, especially growing up in, in Iraq and seeing, you know, the the hardships that the church went through at times, clergy went through over various 
parts of our history, you know, that sometimes are big bumps. He felt that, well, you know, he's seen Kasha so-and-so or Maru so-and-so have to suffer this over... They didn't want that as much. So they didn't want that to happen to them. But my mom was always very supportive. She never second-guessed my vocation. And when did your mom pass away? In May of last year. Wow, so not too long ago. Not too long ago, yeah. And your father is still alive? No, he passed before my mother in uh, August of 2013. How's that been, just being being without your parents now? Uh, I, I must say that was probably the biggest hurdle in my life mm. so far. And it did take some getting used to and transitioning mentally, psychologically, spiritually. But I think now I'm pretty much over that and i mean you never you're never over the loss but the the immediate pain and and the realization that you know the parents aren't there anymore and yeah i think uh, that's something that we all dread we have no idea yeah. what it'll feel like we have no idea what it'll be like but we know you know our parents are going to eventually move on right and even though they were older my father was almost 89 90 about 90 my mother was about 83 or so but still it's uh, the age never makes a difference Mm -hmm. yeah but those two people were a powerhouse in your life and you grew up in america in chicago are you a bears fan uh yes especially in 85 oh no no i'm just teasing (laughs) the best year for the bears yeah so but 85, I you would have been like 12, 13. About 11. That's like the perfect time for your team to win it all. <laughs> you, you can never enjoy a Super Bowl as much as you would at that age. The well, there was a hype. I mean, that year, of course, I don't know if you followed it or not, but the you know the players were really, they were, they were phenomenal and they were almost iconic. You know, refrigerator. Yeah, Perry, Mike Ditka, Buddy uh, Ryan, and uh, Peyton, McMahon. Yeah. You know, all Payton, these people that right. they were almost icons. So you grow up uh, in the church and also firmly planted in the American culture as well, and then decide you want to be a priest and give your life to the church, and then you do, right? You get ordained as a deacon at sixteen, and then the next step you get ordained. What's after deacon? Well, even getting to the deacon part was kind of... That's a hurdle. Uh, not a hurdle, but the, I think that was that was really the foundation. So after the diaconate, sort of things just fell into place. But When you say diaconate, what does that mean? So that would be shemashuta, uh, oh, okay. which entails the so three deacon. ranks of reader, subdeacon, deacon, qaruya, hupidyakna, then shemasha. But at that time, as I mentioned, transitioning from Sunday school to the youth group, I have to say this for the record because it, it also played a major role in my, my own vocation was uh, our late patriarch, His Holiness Mardenka. So growing up in Chicago, and of course he, he moved to Chicago in 82 from Iran, he moved the patriarchal see. And so his permanence in Chicago and the U.S. in general was uh, was very vital, I think, for the growth of our church and there was and the various parishes. There so, was a certain number of people who, who were not happy about that, right? They wanted the sea or the, the place where the patriarch resides to be in the original homeland. To be back home in Iraq. Yes, uh, various opinions have been expressed over over the years. But, you know, looking back, hindsight is twenty twenty. That was the better decision to, that the patriarch did make because really the political climate was such that it would have been detrimental not only to him personally to the patriarchate but to the church it actually would have been crippling had he been in iraq prior to 2003 
But I mean, you can interpret that different ways. But I think it was uh, very wise to have kept the patriarchal seat yeah. in the so U.S. Even big... though the church, even the patriarch himself, he wanted to move back many times. But, you know, the political situation was so volatile that right when the decision was made and the patriarch with the, the rest of the bishops in Synod, they had, you know, made the formal declaration, then something goes wrong in the Middle East. Something goes wrong in Iraq. So it never really transpired. But his move to the to the U.S. from Iran a few years just after the revolution, I think was the best move for the church here in the diaspora. Because at that time, we really were still, and we still are in many respects, but particularly at that time, we were an immigrant church. We were a fledgling church in the sense of really structuring parishes and dioceses in the U.S. Even though the church has had a presence in, in America since, well, the first bishop of the Church of the East came to the U.S. in 1841. So he went to Minnesota. So he was invited by the Presbyterian missionary Justin Perkins, responsible for the uh, translation of the Bible into modern Assyrian. Mm -hmm. It's not the best modern Assyrian, but it was the first translation. So he and Perkins had a decent relationship. Oh, they were very close. He brought him over. He stayed. His name was Mariu Khannan. He was the bishop of Ormi. He was from the village of Gyawira, but he was the bishop of Ormi. And his tomb is in the old St. Mary's in Ormi. He's, he's buried there. So he was here for about 20 years before the Civil War. Abraham Lincoln wasn't even president yet. And we had an wow. Assyrian bishop here. And he toured the various churches. And I actually have a news clipping from 1841, I think it's Minnesota, where he visited. And they have a, it's a woodcut sort of picture of him. And they're describing how this oriental bishop and, you know, in this uh, exotic dress has come and he speaks Aramaic and things of that nature. So that was the very first time an, an Assyrian clergyman had stepped foot 1841. On. Yes. That's a good fact to know. Yeah. And then from then on, for the early 20th century, so 1919 was the second really major visit by one of our bishops from the Middle East who began to establish parishes in the U.S. His name was Mariuwala. He was the Bishop of Barwar. And in 1919, he came over to visit and he was made the honorary president of the first, and it had nothing to do with the Federation at the time because there was no Federation, but it was called the first Assyrian Convention that was held in Chicago in 1920. So he was the honorary president. And so he established parishes in Chicago, in New Britain, in Philadelphia, and other parts of the, the Midwest. And then after him in 1925, uh, the Metropolitan Marty Mathius came in from India, and he began to ordain priests and formalize what the bishop did before him a few years in Chicago, Flint, and in Gary, Indiana. And then he also went to Flint to um, New Britain and to uh, other parts of the, the Midwest, and he established parishes, and they formally registered the church in Chicago and in New Britain in 1924. So in a couple of years, we're going to celebrate the church's formal presence of 100 years in, in the U.S. That's awesome. That's that's amazing. So yeah. when you were growing up in Chicago, the patriarch being seated there was huge for you because you had regular contact. And was he a mentor to you? He was, yes, in many respects, because he was very close to the youth group. So we had uh, at St. George, uh, we had our regular youth gatherings on Sundays. 
So, and Fridays we would have, because I, I was also in the uh, choir at the cathedral for about two to three years. So he would actually do the practice with the choir and teach them the hymns and, and the tunes. So we'd see him on Friday for choir practice. And then on Sunday, he would stop by oftentimes to visit with the youth. At one point, we had about f- almost 400 youth that were just running wow. all over the place in the basement of the church, playing games. And he would sit down and play chess oftentimes with the youth that were there that, that were able to. So he would visit quite often. And so that really impressed many of us and uh, myself personally. Obviously, he knew our parents, too, from back home. So it was at that point, seeing me in the Sunday school and then in the youth, that he told he began to charge our priests there to begin to tutor me uh, in Aramaic and then the liturgy of the church. And that's what began to happen in the late 80s. And then in 1990, when we had a new parish priest come in from Iraq, Archdeacon Schneemann, who's still in Chicago now, he formally sort of was charged by the patriarch to to tutor me and then so from 90 to 92 I was with the, the archdeacon, who was a, the parish priest at the time. And then in, early, in January of 92, I was made a deacon by the patriarch. And then from 92 to about 99, I had further studies in the liturgy of the church by the same priest. And at that point, I went to, after graduating high school, I went to uh, Loyola University at the Lakeshore campus. And what did you study there? Uh, well, I did my undergraduate there. My major was theology and minor philosophy. So that's sort of really, you know, the standard that's, that's procedure. The, uh, that's a firm foundation. But your story it sounds like, you know, you got amazing mentors at a young age, people who invested in you. You found something that you actually enjoyed, which was the languages and learning about the church and being a deacon. Right. And then you you had amazing community around you with youth group and students and lots of people and obviously having the patriarch there. And then I'm guessing when you get to college, you just fall more in love with the studying and the learning. Well, yeah, in college, it, it, it accelerated and I continued my studies in in Aramaic and in the writings of the church fathers and the liturgy of the church. And so I did further research. I mean, just not simply with the parish priest, but also on my own. And so I, I, you know, as much as I could, I tried to deepen my knowledge and just by finding other resources and reading and studying. And so that helped quite a bit. And then after I graduated in 97, I want to say, so I was at Loyola from 93 to 97. And I have to say, I enjoyed my time there. Did you ever it's join a beautiful a, campus. Did you ever join a fraternity? I had not, no. no. I tried was there, did they have any fraternities there? Uh, they did. Not any Assyrian ones or anything having to do with... Uh, I'm just trying to did, yeah. catch a feel for what you were like you know, back in your college days. You were just in the grind, in the books. In the books, yes. Did you work anywhere? Or? Yes, I had a... Um, a work-study program that I worked at the theology department and at the library. So I did some work-study when I was there, which was good because I had access to books a lot. So And so you got the firm foundation as a deacon, you got your undergraduate, and then did you go on for, you went on for your master's? Well, yeah, after I graduated in 97 from Loyola, I was charged by the patriarch to go to seminary. So in Chicago, in the suburb of Chicago, in the city of Mundelein, there's the University of St. Mary of the Lake, which is the Archdiocesan, uh, Archdiocese of Chicago Catholic Seminary. So I, along with one of our other priests who is now in Chicago, Archdeacon William Tuma, and our bishop in Syria, Bishop Mara from Athniel, he was a priest at the time. The three of us were together as classmates at uh, Mundelein Seminary. 
So we did an extra. So you all went through this program together, basically? Yeah, they were there a year or two before me, but I was there for about two and a half years uh, because I had the undergraduate and and I had the philosophy. in divinity. Yes, my MDiv. And it took me about two and a half, two, well, two full years and one summer semester. And then you went to Rome to get your doctorate? Well, after graduating, I was ordained a priest by the patriarch in, on May 23rd, 1999. So it'll be 20 years next year. Mm-hmm. It was Pentecost Sunday. And actually, myself and Father William were ordained priests together, and Bishop Ephraim was made a core bishop at the time, so the same ordination. And then a month after that, yeah, we, our church had some scholarships from Rome, and the patriarch sent me and Father William to study and do our licentiate, which would, in essence, is another master's and our doctorate at the Pontifical Oriental Institute. Wow. So, which is. How many years were you there? Well, I was in Rome for six years from 99 until 2005. And I did my master's and I began my uh, doctoral studies in liturgy, in Eastern liturgy, because that's the institution in Rome where if you'd like to specialize in Eastern theology and Eastern patristics and liturgy, that would be the place to go. So I was there from 99 to 2005. I completed all of my coursework for doctoral studies and I began my writing my thesis. And then in 2005, I was requested to come back to the U.S., And I served for one year as the assistant parish priest at our parish in Los Angeles, St. Mary's. They had just opened up a parish school. It was a junior high school and high school, and so I was asked to teach. And I taught Assyrian language, religious education, and Assyrian history for one year, from 05 to 06. And then in early 2000s, in May 2006, I was assigned to be the parish priest for our San Jose parish. And I was there until November of 2008. When you got installed as a bishop? November 2008, yes, I was early. Well, before that, in October, in the synod uh, that took place in Duhok in Iraq, I was elected bishop for the newly restructured Diocese of California, which uh, has the three parishes in the Central Valley area, Modesto Series Turlock, two parishes in the Bay Area, San Francisco, San Jose, and we have a Sacramento mission. And we have a parish in Seattle, Washington. So all of these parishes were grouped together to form one diocese, uh, which was called the Diocese of California. And I was ordained uh, at the Cathedral Church of Marzaya in Modesto by the late His Holiness Mardinka in, on May 30th, no, November 30th, 2008. So the 10-year anniversary is coming up. I believe so, yeah. <laughs> I stopped counting after the first yeah. two years. Well, what yeah. about the doctorate? Did you ever finish that? Well, yes. The doctorate uh, I finished when I was the parish priest in San Jose. Got it, yeah. Uh, which was a difficult period because the church was going through uh, issues that we had with when one of our bishops was um, suspended and removed. And then there was a whole... Oh, the juicy um, stuff. The juicy stuff, yeah. <laughs> well, Which we probably won't get yeah, go no into during so, this podcast. So what about... Um, but well, as I was saying, so I was... You know, that was my actually my first full-time parish uh, that, that I was given charge of. And so I had to go through all of what was going on on the side, then pastoral work and writing my thesis at the same time. But... I was able to uh, to finish, and so I defended in 
June of 2007, and I received my doctorate. Good for you. And so, I'm still. So do we call you Doctor Ruel? No, I've never used the title to be honest. I think the pastoral title is much more venerable than academic titles. So. Well, it's always good to have that ready to go. <laughs> yeah. But by the way, I'm trying to re-edit my, my thesis and whatnot so, so that I can get it published soon, hopefully, within a year or two. And it's on the liturgy of the church and the history of the church's liturgy, how it developed. So in between a lot of different stuff. I look forward stuff, to reading that. Yeah, it'll be interesting because it's, it's not simply liturgy. I mean, there's tracing through. There's a lot of, uh, and I'm sure we'll go through other questions that you have in the podcast but there's a lot of ethnic uh, background to the liturgy as well so how that all developed the language part the uh, the ethnicity the influences not only of the old testament but you have the syrian and babylonian religious traditions that you can see traces of in the liturgy so it's interesting so Mark, we can maybe do another podcast on that later after yeah, my book comes out. I want to jump in now to some other questions I feel like you would want people to actually hear. Sure. Across the country, one of the things that's happening is people simply are not going to church as much anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least that's what the polls say. And I heard you reference that at, uh, in one of your talks. Right. And you're the bishop. So, so many Assyrians... You know, some go to church, some want nothing to do with the church, some go to different traditions. What are your thoughts in terms of like, what's the value of the Assyrian Church of the East to the world today? And what does it matter for a 25-year-old Assyrian? Why would they want to show up? What's the value for them? Okay, so that's probably one of the greatest challenges the church is facing, not just in the U.S., but I would say in the diaspora as a whole, is... The role of the church in the life of the faithful, especially the younger generations, and how effective that role is. Uh, well, needless to say, you know, maybe I should backtrack. As a people, and you, you asked a, a very pointed question that's important, which let me... Is a fair question? It's a very fair question, but let me sort of backtrack and ask... If I can ask sure, myself yeah, a question. Sure, yeah, let's have a good conversation. <laughs> Why is the Church of the East of any importance to the Assyrian nation, the Assyrian people, whether they're 25-year-olds, 80-year-olds, just so, being born? I think many would easily say, you know, if it wasn't for the Assyrian Church of the East, Assyrians wouldn't exist today, that it's what's kept the nation together. Yet there are so many people now, they're like, well, we're in the United States of America. We can do whatever we want with our lives. We have our civic organizations that keep us together. We're mm-hmm. trying to get our own homeland. So, yeah, I mean, the Church of the East has been valuable for all this time, but what's the value today? Well, we have to remember that as a people, uh, and you mentioned it, the Assyrians do not have their own homeland. In fact, very, very sadly, we're being driven out of our own homeland. In September of 2014, I and a few other bishops, we went to visit the the refugee camps that that housed thousands and thousands of Christians from not only the Assyrian Church, from the Syrian Orthodox and Syrian Catholic and the Chaldean churches as a result of ISIS coming into, into Mosul. And overnight, these people were driven out of their ancient homeland. Our people were driven out of their ancient homeland. So that means that as a people... Sure, we're living in the United States and, you know, we have 
everything we need. We have nice homes and fancy cars and good jobs. But are we really whole as a people? Are we really satisfied as a people? Are we fulfilled as a nation? And I would say no, because we're still on that road and that pilgrimage to get to where we need to be. Until we get there, I mean, the statehood, and you mentioned this as well, statehood, of course, is on the mind and hearts of every Assyrian person, I would dare say. Not only in the U.S., but at least in, in the Western world and in many countries of the Middle East. But that's a process that that is that takes many years and much sacrifice, and we may not even see that in our own lifetime. So what's to guarantee that process? What will help us advance in that process? And that's where the church comes in, where obviously, first and foremost, the church is the spiritual bulwark of our people, of our nation. You know, the early apostles during the first very first few decades came and evangelized our forefathers in our own ancient homelands. So three years after the resurrection, Marade came to Edessa and he preached to Abgar and his kingdom and he healed the king and he brought the gospel there. Around the year 80, his disciple Marmari came deeper into the Persian Empire and he established the church in Seleucia Stesiphon. You had, by the end of the first Christian century, you had missionary centers in, in Arbil, in Adyabene, called by the Greeks Adyabene. And so you have this early missionary work among the remnants of the Assyrian Empire. And so they had lost the Assyrian Empire back in 612 BC. But now there's a new, quote-unquote, empire being formed, which is the church, which is the kingdom of God, which is the Christian faith, which is now the Assyrians who are forming this empire which is spiritual in nature. And that empire really, really advanced. I mean, when you see that in the annals of the church, the history of the church then in the 4th century and very early 5th century, the earliest Christian university was formed by our spiritual forefathers. So you're saying that, if I'm connecting the dots here, you're saying that the church has always been the one that's created a land whether it was inside the land or outside the land, it's created a place for Assyrians to be Assyrians. It's created a place and it's created an identity for us. So during the modern age to our sure. present age. Yeah. 1500 to Right. How did, yeah. not that the name Assyrian was beginning to be used, but how was that highlighted? For our people, it was through the church. So some would argue that it, it wasn't even a part of our history, like the name Assyrian, that doesn't pop up until the Protestant missionaries show up to Iran. and To really research their history a lot better. So you're saying then the church has been the place where the name Assyrian has been preserved. Oh, of course. If you go back to the year 20 AD, the first modern, and I use the word modern loose because that's almost 2000 years ago the first modern map of the known world was uh, drawn up by a cartographer who was roman by the Strabos. name of strabo yes yeah now if you check his map in the year 20 and this is you know when christ didn't even begin to preach yet if you check the area of what is modern day arbel he has he calls it assyria because he's building on the history and and what was passed down from the time of alexander the great that that area, which is modern-day Arbil and its environs, was the remnants of the Assyrian Empire. He calls it Assyria. 
And so you have the one of the earliest Christian missions before the close of the first century take place in that very, very area, those very lands. So what happened to the Assyrians? I mean, after the fall of Nineveh, oh. it's not like they dissipated in the air. So, so they were there. They, they, they took again, refuge in the mountains there. So credit the church for keeping the Assyrian people together. And yet there are so many, I shouldn't say so many, I don't know how many, maybe there's very few, mm. but there are some who now um, don't feel a connection to the church or maybe if they do go to church, they don't feel a connection while they're there. What are your thoughts on that? Now we're delving into the, you know, to a discussion on the personal spirituality and faith of individuals that come to church. One thing that we have to realize, you know, and our listeners have to call to mind about all of the Eastern churches, which includes the Assyrian Church of the East, is that we are ethnic churches. So the Assyrian Church of the East, called the Church of the East, known as the Persian Church, at one point it was called the Nestorian Church, which is a misnomer, had evangelized all of the known parts of Asia. The territory of the Patriarch of the Church of the East, around the year 1000, was larger than that of the Bishop of Rome, the Pope, and the Patriarch of Constantinople combined, because all of the most of the Near East and Asia was under his spiritual jurisdiction. So the church wielded a great spiritual power and force over many different peoples. I mean, you know, for example, the church and the missionaries of the church, the monks, and they gave a writing, they gave an alphabet to, to many a, a Turkic and, and Central Asian peoples that only had a spoken language. They gave them an alphabet. I've seen those documents. I've, I've touched a few of them. So the church has always been, uh, you know, a spiritual force. So we are, the Eastern churches are all ethnic churches by nature. So when you say Russian Orthodox Church, obviously the predominant, you know, makeup of the people is Russian. Greek Orthodox Church, the Armenian Apostolic Church, the Syriac Orthodox Church. You're not simply saying something about the theology of that church, but you're saying, who are these people? At one point, it, the Church of the East was not only and exclusively among the Assyrian people. But because of centuries of persecution, today it is. Isn't it in India as well? With non-Assyrian... That's correct, yes. And we've... The Church of the East has had... Well, the original church in India was that of the Church of the East until the arrival of the Portuguese in 1499. That's when the Catholics... That's when, yes, the Catholic Portuguese missionaries... Well, the Portuguese came over and they brought missionaries with them. And they were astonished to find that, you know, the history records that there were about 100,000 Christians. They all belonged to the Church of the East. They had their own metropolitan who came from Mesopotamia. The same thing with China. When Marco Polo writes in his, you know, in his voyages that he was astonished to find churches and bishops and priests and Christians in China, you know, that says a lot. The Church of the East arrived in China that recorded in 635. There are even theories that it got there earlier. So if I'm... Connecting the dots, what I'm hearing you say is that if there's an Assyrian out there who maybe doesn't feel connected to the church, they ought to feel connected just by virtue of their ethnicity? Yes, because it is the ethnic church of our nation. If you look at our Ar Armenian brothers and sisters, they have the same phenomena. They have lived and under because of, again, centuries of persecution, conquest, etc. The church is not simply where they go to pray. 
obviously we pray in church, we worship God in church. I don't want to, you know, to, to politicize the church, but we have to realize that a, as a people that does not have its own land, its own territory, its own country, the church is that land. The church is our country. Since the conquest of Constantinople, for example, when the Turks came in in 1453, up until the First World War, the end of the First World War, where the Ottoman Empire was dismantled, it was the patriarch of the Church of the East who was the head of the church and the head of the nation. That was a de facto uh, part of, of Assyrian life for many, for six centuries. You know, they didn't say, oh, well, your holiness, you know, you so sit world, in your cell and say your prison. The world has changed, and there isn't very many nations that are led by their religious figure. Well, or is you there? Have, of course there are, yes. <laughs> you have the Tibetans who are led by the sure. Dalai Lama. You have, uh, you have other groups, other ethnic groups that are out there. So, you know, we fall into that same category. Now, the church preserves her faith, obviously, in Christ. And we take great pride, and it should be a spiritual pride, and not something that you know we we sort of um, brag about. Or... Brag about, but it was our forefathers that brought the gospel first to China. We were talking earlier before we started the podcast about China, and um, you know, God has given me the the beautiful opportunity to have visited the mainland once, and I went to Xi'an, which was. The capital of you know the Han at the time that the missionaries of the Church of the East arrived in 635. That was the center of the church's life, and then you know there at the museum there they have the so-called Nestorian stele, you know the Nestorian monument, which goes back to the year 780, 781, which is the first Christian monument slash document that exists in China where you can go and touch and look at, you know, and it was a beautiful feeling when I put my hand on that stele. And there are other documents that have been found. We have friends in, in Hong Kong who are, for example, researching that. There's a good friend, his name is David Tem. He heads the Jin Zhao Fellowship in Hong Kong. And Jin Zhao is the Chinese, the original Chinese word for Church of the East. Jin Zhao, the first word used for Christians, for Christianity and for Church of the East. And it means the luminous religion. So there are documents that were discovered in uh, in southern China in in a cave in Dunhuang, which have liturgical prayers that were translated into the Chinese of the day that we still recite today in the Church of the East, and they go back to the early 600s. Those very documents. So you know the church has has done a lot for our people. Now we live in a postmodern age, obviously. Yeah, and I'm hoping we'll That's, be post postmodern soon. Yeah, if we it, it probably already. is post postmodern, but <laughs> but uh, you know, I think the role of the church ought not to change. You know, is there a disconnect between many of our Assyrians today and the church? Yes, there are. If you ask the older generations, there are more political reasons for that. If you ask the younger generations, you know, they'll say, oh, well, we don't understand the old language. And yeah, so how do you and solve Kasha these so issues? And so, like, you know, we don't understand if, him. And if, the, if a kid shows up to the church and they don't understand what the priest is saying, doesn't that kind of create a dilemma for either the kid who has to somehow pretend like they're interested or the pastor to the church to say you know 
do we have a responsibility here to adjust our language or adjust how we're connecting with the people so they understand? That's a valid point, but I think I tend to look at it a bit differently. Okay, so in, in the services of the church, we have the readings from the scriptures and the gospel, and the homily or the sermon is delivered into modern Assyrian. Some of the other prayers are said in modern Assyrian. There are books in the pews where your average parishioner who can read English, Assyrian, and some places we have other languages of that country, they can take the book and look at it. The problem is, I mean, people are quick to blame the church, but the problem is our people have also become lazy. So we were, we're able to read other materials, but we don't want to pick up, you know, the it's called the Green Book here in the U.S. because it has the services in Assyrian and in Aramaic, the phonetics in English, and the translation. So there's really no excuse. So if you can read any of these languages, you can follow the liturgy along, and you can hear the, the, the preaching in modern Assyrian, you can hear the readings in modern Assyrian, and all of the, the communion hymns that are recited during the communion, many of them that were authored by the late Patriarch Mardancha, in order to foster the participation of the worshippers on Sunday, are in modern Assyrian. I mean, we have the really ancient ones that are venerable, like the, the communion hymn of St. Ephraim the Great of Marapram Rabba, Maran Isho, uh, the ones of Marnarse, the harp of the spirit, Awat Wishta. These are hymns that our forefathers sang back in the 300s and the 400s, and the church is still using them today. We're using them not because we're a museum, just to keep them because they're old, but because we have that connect with our spiritual forefathers, and the, the church is trying to keep that link alive. It's not acting merely as a museum. But again, because we are a people where we don't have our own homeland, the church is trying to do... For example, in all of the parishes of the Church of the East in the U.S., and other parts, but you know, we're talking about our own country, all of the parishes have Assyrian language classes of one form or another. And almost all of them have youth groups, they have Bible studies. Where, where does that, that hit up against the civic organizations? So what's the role of the civic organizations? What's the role? Like, so for example, some people would say, uh, I don't need to go to church for language. I'll go to my civic organization. You can learn it there. So, well, are they teaching it? And I don't, I don't want to bash our civic organizations because they're part of who we are as a people and as a nation. But truth be told, the church is doing what the civic organizations should have been doing. And that's why people oftentimes say, well, why is the church teaching us here? You know, why, why don't you guys stick to teaching uh, the Bible, the Bible and teaching yeah. the faith? Well, we do both because no one else is doing it. You know, if we had the civic but organizations... But I mean, I think if there was civic organization people here, they would say, yeah, we have... We have Assyrian dance classes and language classes and cooking classes. Well, I beg to differ. The number of Assyrian language classes offered by our civic organizations are few and far between. Okay. So your position is we as the Assyrian Church of the East are keepers and carriers of this unique Assyrian tradition and faith. By default. By default. So I'm not trying to downplay other churches and, and also the civic organizations. Again, I don't want to come across as as if I'm bashing them or anything, but this, I'm just stating facts. You know, the fact that the Church of the East has been the the soul of this nation, it's a historical fact. I'm not saying it, I don't need to make a plug for, the church doesn't need a plug. Right. I'm not here to 
you know. Yeah. This isn't a free commercial for the you church. You know what? I, I'm interested in, you know, one reason for having you on the podcast is because I think so many people, when they think of the church, they think it's irrelevant. It's not important. And the reason why I say that is based on attendance. It's not like I walk into a church on a Sunday and it's packed. And we're talking Assyrian, non-Assyrian, just... Right. This is not an Assyrian Church of the East thing. This is... It's a problem that Christianity as a whole has. Sure. What's the value? Why should I be a Christ follower versus a happy, jolly person who enjoys nice brunches on Sundays with their friends? I don't need to have communion served to me at the church. I have communion on Sunday night with my next door neighbors. We have a barbecue together. We like to drink beer. We brew our own beer. What you know? There are folks out there who say the church doesn't make me happier. It makes me feel guilty about myself and not in a healthy way. So my understanding is you as the bishop is someone who's overseeing how the church is serving its community. So that's where I see there's possibly a disconnect of are we serving? Do you feel the Assyrian Church of the East is serving in a way that's truly meeting the needs of people today? Let me put this disclaimer out. There's always room for improvement. That goes without saying. Yeah. The sermons can be improved. You know, Father so-and-so's singing could be improved. Deacon (laughs) so-and-so's reading could be a lot better. But, you know, people who complain, oftentimes you'll find that they don't reflect on what their role and part is in all of this. So the church is not merely the bishop or the patriarch or the clergy or the priest or the deacons and the choir. People have a role to play in the life of the church. So one one discussion, of course, that's very lively among us today is should all of the services be translated into modern Assyrian or partially into modern Assyrian parts in Aramaic or, as we find in different parishes in different places, all in Aramaic. Do you have any to say we need to do it all in English? Well, we in our diocese here, we have once a month at the cathedral, we have an English service that's completely in English with some of the more ancient tunes, of course, when they're repeated three times, one of those three times or two of those three times. And how has that been working out? Well, to be honest, we used to have it every Sunday. But and we, yeah. we we studied it, and the parish priest spoke to me, and he said, Your Grace, you know, why don't we do it once a month? Because attendance is in... And the same people that were coming in at the Aramaic service in the morning were the ones coming predominantly to the English service. So the response from typical kind of religious people is, Oh, the world is just full of sinners. And they're not going to show up to church on Sunday because we're lazy and because we would rather watch football and all these kinds of things, right? So I know that's probably, you know, it's a big question, but... What do we do about it? Well, what do we do about it and why is it truly happening? Is it truly happening because, you know, human beings are just sinners and they don't want to come to God because then they have to clean up their act? See, I've always understood that if you head in a positive direction for your life, that it's healthy and it's good for you. Right. So if the church is going to be a place that provides health and direction and value and encouragement and whatever people need, then you would think that more and more people would want to go to church. Well, we have to sort of look at what the church's mission is. Why did Christ found the church? Christ founded the church, I mean, we read in Matthew 16, because he wasn't going to be here physically, you know, for all time until he returns again. He left the church as his physical presence in the world. So, for example, one of the fathers 
I believe it's Patriarch Timothy II in one of his commentaries on the sacraments. He, when he's explicating on what the altar is, and basically he's saying that the the, uh, the church is the sacrament of Christ, meaning the church, and but the, by the church I don't mean a physical structure, of course. The church, with its faith and sacraments and the proclamation of the gospel, is the sacrament of Christ. It makes Christ present in the world. That's how Christ is present. And when we don't see that, when we don't see a need for it in our lives, you know, a typical, many times when I see people, for example, either visiting or a home visitation, whatever it is, I I, I say, oh, you weren't in church yesterday. And I used to do that as a priest, too. I used to call people out <laughs> in a nice way, not in a judgmental way. Yeah. And I said, oh, for example, I saw your dad in church, but you weren't in church yesterday. Or when I would see people in the hall... And they were in the hall, but they hadn't taken communion. I said, oh, you didn't take communion today. And oftentimes, you know, they're taken aback by that. You know who takes communion and who's in church. And yeah, we keep tabs on you. We're supposed to. You're our sheep. You know, we have to answer to God for... What do you mean by sheep? The flock that's entrusted to our spiritual care, to the church's spiritual care. Well, it's been a blast. So thanks for taking the time. And um, thank you, Steve. I hope you'll be a regular on the show. Well, do you, there's a few podcasts we got to get through, I think. Thank you for uh, for the time, and God bless all of our listeners. 